podcast on May 2nd, 2023. Kurt Vonnegut was one of the most important writers in my life. In fact, he was the writer that actually made me want to be a writer. I worshipped his books, his writings, his letters to schools, explaining why banning his books from their libraries was a terrible idea. And I still hold so much admiration for all of his work. I believe I always will. I would easily say to anyone who asked that Vonnegut is one of my three major influences as a writer. His humor alone is worth reading everything he's ever written, even if some of the works are, admittedly, less so. When I first started writing in high school, I copied his style, his humor, for years after I first discovered him, wanting to be him, have his career, his ideas, his jokes. My obsession with Vonnegut started when I was a teenager, knowing I was interested in books and literature, something I had admittedly fallen away from in my early preteen years, and got back into when I approached college years. My father handed me his beat-up old paperback copy of Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle, telling me it was one of his own favorite books as a teenager. I still have that copy sitting on my shelf right next to me. It's old orange cover, yellowed pages, a corner of the cover missing, crinkled, the copy my dad read as a teenager, the same one I did. I read it in about two days, immediately hungry for more, then searched out every Vonnegut book I could, including his opinion writings. And to this day, though I haven't reread it in more than a decade, I'll admit, I would always say my favorite of Vonnegut's works is Breakfast of Champions which I believe to be his funniest and most successful in terms of his style and his use of the language and his prose, as well as his drawings and uh, his use of the sci-fi stuff. It just all works perfectly. Of course, I would never dare imply it was more successful, financially and critically, than Slaughterhouse-Five, what many call Vonnegut's masterpiece. And I would never argue with that. I can be objective, even when I have my own biases towards a book like Breakfast of Champions. But for reasons I will get into later in this episode, I did find myself, I'm sorry to say, a little disappointed in a way, rereading this. Disappointed in a way I never thought I would be. The book flies by. It's a tight little 200 pages or so. I reread it in a few days. But I did get a sort of unexplainable, hollow feeling from it all. And I kept asking myself, why? I suppose I wanted it to hit me over the head like it did when I first encountered it in my teen years. A big ask, I know. I asked myself if this was because I had gotten even more cynical, less cynical? Had I improved in terms of my craft, my understanding of literature? Or was it just that I'm too old and educated now to just enjoy things? A snob? I don't know, but I thought about that for a while. Why, reading this novel again, while very enjoyable, wasn't the same as my intoxication as a teenager encountering this novel for the first time. 
And I was fascinated by the techniques Vonnegut uses in this novel, in this read. His own self inserted into random pages, paragraphs, and then that opening first chapter, where Vonnegut's almost addressing the reader as part of the book. A genius move, in my reading, using it to set up the later insertion of himself in the prison camps, etc. I did briefly consider if this might be the first autofiction, but I also found myself wondering if that first chapter and the following self-insertions were to explain the thought process, how much he struggled to write this novel, what it took out of him. That brief 200 pages, taking years off his life to even produce. And I think that's why he wrote himself into that first chapter, the origin story as part of the story. And I will continue to say this is a great book, one that should be canonized among the 20th century greats, but it does lack some emotional resonance due to the humorous use of Vonnegut's style. And I do keep considering the idea that maybe I'm asking too much of a book like this. But about halfway, I started to entertain ideas about why I found the humor almost too cynical, too simple in parts. And what I mean by that is simply that the humor almost overshadows the tragedy, the death that is constantly everywhere, all the time. I had never had this thought before, and really I was shocked to think it now as I reread one of my favorite books by one of my favorite authors. And maybe I'm being too sensitive, too grandiose, too pearl-clutching, but, 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 that did make me think of taste maturing, as Bloom would say. Interests changing, senses of humor changing. And unfortunately, that made me think of growing older. That maybe the problem was me, my too old and too mature brain, unable to goof off or play pretend as well as I used to. I'm not saying I have an answer to any of this, but I have been struggling to articulate it. I talked this idea over with my father some the other night during our usual Sunday night chats over video call, where all sorts of topics come up, everything from sports to news to dinners and events, anything. And I told him that I was rereading Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, a book we had bonded over, father to son. We talked, and he compared it loosely to some themes in All Quiet on the Western Front, as he had just watched the new remake on Netflix. And it dawned on me that maybe Vonnegut used the phrase, so it goes, after every mention of death in his book, because he could not write it any other way. That if he tried to make a serious, straight drama about the bombing of Dresden, something like All Quiet on the Western Front, that Vonnegut may not have been able to stomach it how much death was just casually laying on the sides of roads, that his introductory chapter about how he came to write this novel was his way of saying that to the reader, that he may have believed the book to be a failure in that way, that he couldn't stomach the real horror of it and could only write it with his usual humorous bent, the cynicism as a shield in some way. But then the options are the same if we are cynical or not. The options are, accept the horribleness all around you at all times, 
or worry yourself to death over it. Very humanist perspective. But then I considered the faking of acceptance. The pretending that everything horrible simply happens and there is nothing we can do about it. And of course, that is probably very true. All sorts of horrible things happen all the time and no one can stop them. But the accepting of it, I don't know if I can. While I thought laughing off death and horrible tragedy was perfectly wise as a teen, I think of it less so now. And maybe that's my problem. I have a hard time believing anyone can just accept the horrible facts of the world with a shrug. The war, the murder, the death, the just plain unlucky, as Vonnegut would say. But this is the beauty of reading a good book. It forces you to reflect on these sorts of things. Billy Pilgrim, the time-traveling main character, only a conduit for contemplation. Our own mortality, futilely bumping up against roadblocks and horrible happenings for no good reason. This is life. So it goes. As Vonnegut says, almost as a poetic refrain in the novel, a chorus of death that keeps chirping up on every page. But I wonder if anyone can actually just accept it, all the horror, like Billy Pilgrim, a weirdo, a freak of nature, that maybe just accepting the horror of the world isn't in our normal programming, our machinery, as Vonnegut would say, that there will always be a few things out of our control that we can't help but desperately, hopelessly, try, fight against it. And perhaps that's the real tragedy of it all, that we aren't as well adjusted and smart as we think we are, that maybe we are all just as scared as animals, just as unable to understand and contemplate the unfairness of the world, of death, of experiencing life for a brief moment before it's buried in the ground forever, how cruel it all really is. How futile. Death being so casual at all times, all around us, as the death statistics at the end of the novel aim to imply, and us pretending it isn't, not thinking about it, at the very least, I think that's what Vonnegut may be saying in this novel. That the tragedy of life is almost as random as being, quote, unstuck in time, like Billy Pilgrim, being able to move fluidly through space, time, experiences, death here, death there, tragedy everywhere. We can either accept it or fret over it. And if we accept it, we can either laugh or cry. Vonnegut chooses to make us laugh. And maybe that's the joke I found less funny as I get just a little bit closer to my own mortality each day. How accepting such an absurd fate can only be faked. No one ever really accepts it. So it goes. Heavy Board. Welcome to another edition of Heavy Board. I'm Andrew Wittstadt, running solo. And uh, today, as you heard in the opening monologue, we are going over Kurt Vonnegut's masterpiece, Slaughterhouse-Five. 
Uh, and the edition that I'm using for this one is an old one. So we have Dell Publishing Edition, this uh, original publication in 1969. This version, I believe, was published in 91 as a uh, you know bestseller kind of classic novel thing, Dell Fiction. I've had this. This was the first one I got when I was uh, a teenager, and I've had this little copy since. The pages are, are just beginning to get that little patina on the edges that... Uh, as I referenced my father's copy of Cat's Cradle, which has a very nasty yellow patina on the pages, things like that. You know, those good, healthy old book moments. Good, healthy, used books. Uh, but, of course, everyone knows what we're doing. Everyone knows what edition I have. And, of course, we're going to link it in the description, as always. And I know the new monologue is something, so if you enjoy something like that, if you thought the monologue was something you enjoyed, please let me know. Uh... I, as I'm doing this on my own, I was trying to think of new ways to make it flow a little better without a free-flowing conversation. I think a monologue helps to set the framework for what I'm, what I'm trying to set up, what, what I might go into discussing in more detail. And of course, listeners, I encourage you to please comment on the Patreon page, comment on the YouTube videos. Uh, let me know what you think, because I'm interested. I'm very interested to hear people's opinions, differing opinions, all that good stuff. Uh, let me do a quick housekeeping before we get into the novel here more deeply. And I do plan on going into more explanation of my monologue. That was just a little framer. Uh, but this is a podcast, Heavy Board. If you have, uh, if you don't know, we have a subscription plan, patreon.com slash heavyboard. And you'll receive full access to uncensored episodes, bonus episodes, all for subscribers only. If you don't want to do that, can't afford that, you can subscribe to our YouTube channels. We have a at, at Heavy Board for our main channel. We put all free episodes up there available. You can look at our YouTube Clips channel, at Heavy Board Clips. And if you don't want to support us through Patreon, you can give us a, a like, a subscribe, share it with your friends and family. That helps us grow. It's a free way to support us. We really appreciate it. And of course, I'm still looking for workshop horror stories. If you or someone you know had a terrible experience in a workshop, I want to hear about it. Please send that in in as much detail as possible. I'd like to get a segment going where we, where we discuss these. Send that in to heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. You can also contact us there. And, of course, all the links and everything that we cover is going to be in the description. And then one final announcement I have today, which is disappointing. Uh, I promise I'll, I'll try my best not to cry. Uh, it looks like I will be going forward on my own with this project. Sophie has decided that uh, she can no longer do it. So she is stepping away from Heavy Board and will miss her. But just to let you all know what's going on, you're just going to get stuck with me. But that's housekeeping. I tried to take more extensive notes reading through this uh, novel. And as I mentioned in the monologue, I was a little disappointed. I, I, and I kept trying to find why. And I, and I think... I'll get more into this as I go along. I think I'm too much of a snob to enjoy this the way I did when I was 18, 19, discovering this fabulous writing for the first time. Uh, at least I hope it's that. 
But I kept finding myself being like, you know, there's a lot of telling going on in this novel. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't work, right? The telling can work to the story's advantage. And I think Vonnegut ha- shows us how to do that in a novel like Slaughterhouse-Five. But I did notice it more. I did notice that there was something hollow. It was a bare bones kind of way of doing it. And I think Vonnegut kind of says as much in that opening chapter. And let, let's get into that opening chapter right here, because I, I don't want to. I want everybody. I want to be very clear, and I think I was in the monologue. Vonnegut is one of my favorite authors. He's one of my top three influences, probably always will be. I have almost all his books sitting on my shelf, almost all. Uh, I should complete the collection, but of course I haven't yet. But that first chapter where he kind of has the famous first line, right? All this happened, more or less, on page one. Very funny, kind of humorous and evocative first line. But that whole first chapter is basically a story of how he came to write this, when he was trying to write this novel. And it's interesting that he ties it in to the rest of the novel. This isn't just an introduction. This isn't separated from the rest of the book. This isn't him, like, reflecting... Um, you know, years later for another edition or something like that. It's built into the book. Chapter one is basically part of an introduction and setting up this kind of story. And what I was thinking of, this kind of first 22 pages, as I said, it's kind of an introduction, but I found, my, I found myself asking at least the interesting question, what does this do for the novel? Vonnegut's intrusions throughout the book. Uh, I think it may have been because it is a clever way to let the reader know that a lot of what happens in the book did happen in real life. While still giving an intro to what this was. And of course, in Vonnegut's style, very clever, etc. And uh, I think he kind of admits in that first couple pages that he believes this book to be a failure. At least he did when he finished it. And the very last thing I want to point to everyone, on page, page 22 in my version, there's a quote, or a, quoting the book, people aren't supposed to look back. I'm certainly not going to do it anymore. I've finished my war book now. The next one I write is going to be fun. This one is a failure, and had to be, since it was written by a pillar of salt. It begins like this. Listen, Billy, Pil- Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. It ends like this. Potuit. People aren't supposed to look back. I'm certainly not going to do it anymore. This one is a failure, and had to be, since it was written by a pillar of salt. And of course, he's referencing the Bible story of looking back, right, at the city, breaking your promise. Once you look back, it's over, right? And I think not enough scholarship has gone into this. This idea that Vonnegut himself considered this book a failure, and it's ironically his most popular and most celebrated, most, you know, uh, people consider it his masterpiece and all of that. Uh, Just something I noticed. Uh, Let me know what you think. But on page 23, when he says, right, he tells us the truth on page 22, that the it begins like this, listen, colon, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time, and of course that's how it starts, very next page on chapter two. Listen, colon. It's almost a disclaimer. He's almost disclaiming the novel, like he's telling a story around a campfire or something. So it makes sense that it's almost more tell than show. It's 
not so much clever as it is practical, I would think, in terms of beginning the novel this way with a kind of listen, listen up, I'm talking, you know, like kind of an old man telling a story, etc., which I guess is what he considered himself. I don't know that for a fact. And you all know how I feel about, you know, uh, biography as scholarship for literature. I just, you know, let's avoid that. Although Vanagate was one, he's a writer who's very open about his political opinions, very open about um, his opinions on life, all of that. So listeners can look into that. And then this use of So It Goes, and I mentioned this in the monologue. So It Goes is put in this three-word sentence, this little kind of funny three-word sentence, this kind of aloofness, maybe, is in that three-word sentence, maybe a little flippant treatment. But it, it frames every moment of death in the novel. Every time something is mentioned to have died or died tragically in some way, so it goes, comes after. And my question here is more of a structural question. What does the moniker, so it goes, do to the mention of death in each portion of the novel? My first thoughts were, okay, it's humorous, right? It's a humorous way to show it. It brightens the mood because there's a lot of death in this novel, if you haven't noticed, listeners. Uh, a standard kind of coping mechanism, maybe. And this is where I mentioned the kind of acceptance. It's kind of a way of accepting the chaotic, the tragedy of everything dies, right? One way or another, whether you have a long, fulfilling life or you have a short life, you die of cancer or something. So it goes, right? It keeps going on. But I don't know. This is why I mentioned it a kind of... Can anybody really believe that? Does anybody really believe that we can just kind of shrug our shoulders? I don't know. And I don't want to get into irony and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, well, you know, listeners, if you care, you think irony is important in this, please throw it in there. But this was something I was thinking of. And my conclusion was, if I'm being as honest as possible, which is something I strive to do, I, I don't know. I don't know if anybody can actually accept that. I think there's ways, I think it's a coping mechanism, maybe. Maybe it's a coping. That we can't deal with this 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 infinite tragedy of dead, of everything dies. So we we pretend that we accept it. We 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 shrug our shoulders and make a joke to make ourselves feel more comfortable with the fact with with the fact of like, you know, how absurd it is that we all die kind of thing. Uh, and I did. I started thinking of Bukowski and, th- and one of my other major three influences, uh, which we'll get to later on the podcast, listeners. But yeah, I kept thinking of Bukowski throughout this stuff. And in the novel, sorry, let me get back to this. On page twenty-seven, he made the "so it goes" phrase in this book, in this version, right? He made it an artifact of an alien culture that kind of. I would say the aliens in this book are almost a crutch, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just, I mean it, it. You know, it still works structurally. I just mean, in terms of writing about something so horrific as in war, uh, the alien culture helps to you know obscure the tragedy in some way, which I think is he intentionally did that. I think I'm not saying oh it was bad. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying he intentionally did this as a structural element. Um, but I think, you know, making it an artifact of an alien culture, like a saying in a different culture, so it goes, that's how they treat death, I think it's a good idea. A very good idea. And I mean, Vonnegut's full of good ideas, as, as many fans know. 
But I do think there is more to it than that. The need to make death okay, something that happens to everyone all the time, and we still aren't okay with it. We will never be okay with it. And I think this is why I said it's coping mechanism, or it's, it's to claim that we accept something that we never, that we can't even really compute in our little animal brains. I just, I think it's a lie. <laughs> I guess that's my problem. And maybe, the, and this is why I said, maybe I'm being too cynical, almost too cynical, not cynical enough. I, I, I mean, I went back and forth about this, but you see this, it keeps coming up over and over and over again. Every mention of death, we have the famous phrase, so it goes. I had a friend that actually had a tattoo of that. And you know, when somebody has a tattoo of that, I looked at him and I was just like, ah, Slaughterhouse Five, right? When we first kind of met each other and He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, it starts a whole conversation, and we became friends, you know. Uh, I was at a bar somewhere. I mean, I've seen a lot of people with that. Funny story, when I, uh, when I first met my wife, uh, we didn't know each other at all, literally first time. We were meeting in a bar, like, I, you know, talking to her, hitting on her in a bar, basically. <laughs> and uh, we were talking, talking, and something came up, and uh, I said something about how much I love Kurt Vonnegut, and this is almost almost a decade ago now listeners and my wife's response and this is one of the things that made me love her right away was she rolled her eyes and she said to me oh if i'm at a like if uh, if i meet one more white man that says they love kurt vonnegut and like is he's their favorite author i think i might throw up and uh from that moment on i knew i was gonna marry her but yeah <laughs> fun little story so I get a sip of coffee, get a little toot on the vape here, get a little jewel pod going. <clears throat> As I mentioned in the in the opening monologue, I wanted to touch on this idea of uh, the author inserting himself into the book. So Vonnegut does this masterfully. He does this in all of his books for the most part. Breakfast of Champions. He throws he even throws his father in there a lot of times. And uh, it's not unique to Vonnegut, but I think Vonnegut did it in a way that was very endearing. Um almost charming when you're reading through it. It kind of makes it a joke. And while I criticize some things so far, again, I don't want people to take that the wrong way. I think Vonnegut is probably the funniest writer that ever lived. He's one of the funniest writers that ever lived, if not the funniest, okay? I'll, I'll make that statement. I'll fucking die on that hill, okay? Show me a writer that's funnier than Vonnegut. I dare you. I fucking dare you to show me a writer that's funnier than Vonnegut. Okay, but I will, you know, that is a little... Hmm. I won't get into that yet. The masculine aspect of Vonnegut, how Vonnegut has this kind of appeal to men that doesn't appeal to women in the same way, uh, which is understandable. You know, a lot of his books are masculine. The humor, even, in his books is masculine. What do I mean by that? I mean, there's dick jokes, right? I mean, there's dick jokes about how big Billy Pilgrim's dick is, okay? And he does this in a lot of his books, Breakfast of Champions. There's a lot of dick jokes. <laughs> There's a lot of them. There's a lot of penis jokes. And it, it works. It always works. But let me know what you think. I didn't actually have a big... I should have touched on this topic in terms of like the masculine appeal of Vonnegut. But you know, I didn't have Sophie here, so I usually like to have the, the counterbalance where she can give me the feminine appeal. Um, but let me know what you think, listeners. Put that in the comments wherever you go. I'll find them. The forums whether it's Patreon, YouTube, um, you know, reviews, whatever it is. Apart from that first chapter where he inserts himself, the first instance where he uh, inserts himself as the story is going on, 
even though that first chapter is technically part of the story and he references it at the end of this novel too in the last chapter because he wants to talk about his war buddy O'Hare he said who he actually dedicated the book to his wife Mary O'Hare from his old war, his old war buddy's wife but uh, when they were first captured so Billy's getting captured and he's going into this uh, you know prisoner of war camp in Europe and uh, there's a description, and we meet Wild Bob for the first time, right? And Wild Bob dies. And then they're packed into these kind of boxcars, these kind of prisoner transports. The Nazis are putting everybody into these fucking, all the prisoners into these transports, right? And we, uh, mainly because back then, I mean, that's the only way you transported stuff was really by train um, in the 40s still. But this is the first intrusion where he says, you know, he's describing this as like a, he said all this while, while staring into Billy's eyes. He made the inside of poor Billy's skull echo with balderdash. God be with you, boys, he said, and that echoed and echoed. And then he said, if you're ever in Cody, Wyoming, just ask for Wild Bob. I was there. So was my old war buddy, Bernard V. O'Hare. And that's it, right? That ends that little section. So his I was there, this kind of self-reference of the author. And as I said, this is something Vonnegut does in a lot of his books. Uh, but, but then let's talk about this as a writing and literature podcast. What is the purpose of this? What does it serve? And my first answer to that is, okay, it's humor. It's, it's funny. It's a little reference. There's a little self-awareness in it. And I think there's also a little bit more. There's something that says to the reader, it's a little reminder at that moment when this guy is is basically some a character we're meeting, you know, very briefly. All the characters are very brief in this book. We're meeting him very briefly, and then he's being and then he's dying. The Wild Bill character, I mean. And I think Vonnegut inserting himself into this story was a way to remind the readers that a lot of this actually happened despite the sci-fi elements that, you know, dress around it, the kind of window dressing as he dresses it up to make it a novel in his style, and he writes a lot of weird sci-fi stuff. He kind of elevated the sci-fi genre. He gets the most credit for elevating the sci-fi genre into a more literary form, uh, which we love on this podcast. Listeners, reminder, I love people. I love authors. Was one, maybe that's what one of my things that draws me in is an author that can blend a kind of poppy element, a kind of... What we would call trashy art element with a high-minded literary element, and he Vonnegut usually does this pretty brilliantly. And I think that's why he included that first chapter. That's why he references himself throughout. As I think it's just a little way to remind us that actually, yes, despite all this stuff about aliens moving back and forth through time, that a lot of this actually did happen. That he watched a lot of men die as a prisoner of war. Uh, either from illness, you know, dysentery, simple illnesses like that, starvation, um, you know, the hobo on the train, the the former hobo that was captured and keeps talking about how starving isn't so bad, and then, like, they wake up one day and he's just dead, right? He's cold. Uh, his feet are ivory and blue, all that kind of stuff. So, I don't know, interesting idea there. Let me know what you think in the comments and stuff, listeners. Send me an email. Because I would, if, if since I'm running solo, I just like give me an opportunity to talk more with listeners. And when you have an idea, you disagree with me on something on a podcast, you know, send me an email 
uh, heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. I'd be happy to read them on the podcast. If we have a good one that makes a good argument, I'd be interested to discuss it a little bit. So that's open. Uh, but let's move on to his imagery a little bit. Page 72. And this is just one example of many. You know, he mentions uh, mustard gas and roses in the beginning, and then that's being used to describe uh, not just the smell of breath after you've been drinking too much, but also the smell of death, it's particularly burning bodies uh, after the bombing of Dresden. It comes back up. And uh, this is actually going back to the hobos. So, like, Vonnegut is very good at using these kind of descriptive callbacks, which is a technique in writing, right? You see this in a lot of... A lot of a lot of good writers use this. It's 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 a way to they call it foreshadowing, but it isn't quite foreshadowing. It's kind of a callback, uh, the image being used in multiple ways, but calling back to a, a larger image on top of it. So the everybody's feet being ivory and blue. So Billy Pilgrim's feet, when we see him when he's much older, as we travel back and forth in time in this, he keeps noticing that his feet are ivory and blue. Right, his feet are cold. And then throughout the novel, when we're at the war, all the dead bodies' feet are described as ivory and blue, kind of uh, calling back to define the cold dead feet, but also using it to describe Billy Pilgrim's alive feet. And this is, this is a good example of the craft of literature to emphasize the images, and this one particularly between life and death how maybe even when we're living right death is still there we still share the same attributes making them you know very similar making them connected making life and death so connected and of course they already are this is a huge trope almost in literature and as i mentioned he does this with mustard gas and roses too uh, and he does this in almost all of his books and again, comparing that to, you know, bad breath after drinking too much and then, you know, literally the smell of dead bodies. Um, very, very, very well done. And this is where we get the reference to on page 73 where we get the one of the mustard gas and roses examples. Uh, Billy answered, there was a drunk on the other end. Billy could almost smell his breath, mustard gas and roses. It was the wrong number. Billy hung up. And this little reference is a reference almost 70 pages previously in that opening chapter that's kind of like a weird introduction, but also part of the novel, right? Where this is Vonnegut inserting himself in a more subtle way. He's not saying I'm here or I was there like he did uh, on, the, on the POW trains to the camps. He's saying, this is me calling up Billy Pilgrim, right? <laughs> calling up a wrong number here. Another kind of subtle joke, but yeah. Very good. You got the kind of bugs and aliens metaphor, bugs, bugs and amber metaphor, right, for the aliens. And again, in this kind of described, this kind of way that they use these kind of referencing himself in the first chapter, he does this again on page 125. Let me flip to it real quick before we move. And it was about when they're in the prisoner, <laughs> when they're in the prisoner camp, uh, they're all shooting in buckets, and one person is having terrible diarrhea. An American near Billy wailed. This is page one twenty-five. An American near Billy wailed that he had excreted everything but his brains. Moments later, he said, "There they go, there they go." He meant his brains. That was I. That was me. That was the author of this book. <laughs> 
that is describing himself, just putting himself in there, shitting his brains out in the middle of this scene, right? Very funny. Uh, he does this again on page 148 towards this, uh, and of course in the very last chapter of the novel. Uh, here's the other reference, page 148. Somebody behind me in the boxcar said, Oz, that was I, that was me. The only other, the only other city I'd ever seen was Indianapolis, Indiana. And it works. It works every time. I'm going to emphasize that, how it works every single time. And then I wanted to talk about this bugs and amber metaphor. And this is where I think it's a little bit of like, he's emphasizing the absurdity and the tragedy of life and death, right? And we see this throughout the entire novel. Their aliens help to do this, you could say, with these two cultures that are completely different. And that's one of the things that I think Breakfast of Champions is one of the reasons that's my favorite novel, because if listeners don't know... One of my favorite novels by Vonnegut, I mean, if listeners don't know, that entire novel is written as if it's like an instruction manual to an alien if they came down to Earth, and that's part of what makes it so fucking funny, is that he's describing kind of the absurdity of the everyday that we do in our lives, in American life at least, Western life, first world life, whatever you want to call it. Uh, okay, but this bug metaphor, bugs and amber metaphor, like he, it comes up a few times, but the one I want to say is... Uh, Okay. All time is all time. This is page 86. It does not change. It does not lend itself to warnings or explanations. It simply is. Take it moment by moment, and you will find that we are all, as I've said before, bugs in amber. <laughs> and the, Yeah, you sound to me as though you don't believe in free will, said Billy Pilgrim. If I hadn't spent so much time studying Earthlings, said the Tralfamadorian, I wouldn't have any idea what was meant by free will. I've visited 31 inhabited planets in the universe, and I have studied reports on 100 more. Only on Earth is there any talk of free will. Again, kind of this kind of... This is some of the things that I couldn't help but find a little bit cynical, a little bit depressing. Uh, I've, I know people have thoughts on free will. Uh, you know, share your thoughts on free will. But uh, I'm a Sam Harris fan. I like Sam Harris. Uh, he wrote an interesting book on it um, about a decade ago now, I think. A uh, very short book, but and it's not as strongly argued, I think, as some of his other books, too. I think people uh, attack him for that. Uh, some fairly for them because he doesn't provide a whole lot of evidence but the thing is we don't have a whole lot of evidence uh, and I've heard counter arguments where there's some some um, that the evidence against free will is not necessarily that good uh, but I can't help but think that arguing against free will is just almost almost a so cynical so cynical uh, it's depressing to me. Um, and maybe that's me being delusional. Like I said, I kept asking. It was almost a struggle for me. Whereas I thought this was one of the smartest, funniest books ever written when I first read it, you know, over, over a decade ago, 15 years ago now, maybe more shit. And, uh, I don't know. I, I just... I can't shrug it off like I mentioned in the monologue uh, the way I used to be able to. It haunts me. 
But let me know what you think of that, listeners. Uh, let me know if you think I'm wrong or if you think I have something a point to make. And I think this is encapsulated when he keeps bringing up the kind of why me, you know, how everybody's just kind of like, oh, why me, why me? Uh, and then his response, you know, always very humorous is, uh, why anybody? Why anyone? Right? You know, and I think that's part of the so it goes too. the why me, why anybody, right? Kind of that old philosophical conundrum, right? Where people say why, and then they just write, why not? Right? That kind of philosophical conundrum is like, oh, well, you have to consider both, right? Why anybody? Why you? Why anybody? And I think that calls back to the so it goes, right? Why anybody? So it goes, right? Just because it happens. I don't know. All right. Let's get to uh, let's get to the first mention of Kilgore Trout. Kilgore Trout. And then Rosewater. Rosewater. Vonnegut, real Vonnegut fans know. Rosewater, Kilgore Trout. Um, these are all reoccurring characters in Vonnegut's works. Kilgore Trout is the, uh, you know, very uh, failed sci-fi writer who writes terrible books but has these weird fans. Um, Rosewater, funny story. When I graduated um, college... My father got me this gift. He got me this very nice, you know, leather-bound, signed edition uh, by Vonnegut um, of God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. And it's it's one of my most treasured possessions. <laughs> I know that sounds silly, right? Like, a, it's just a book, but it has an author's signature on it, and it, I think the fact that my father gave it to me makes it more precious to me, but, um, yeah, interesting. Uh, I just, I'll never forget it. I have it sitting right here on my shelf and it's, you know, I just look at it sometimes, but all right, Kilgore Trout comes in and this is Vonnegut's famous kind of reoccurring character, a fictional sci-fi writer, um, uh, and, and Trout is actually one of the stars of my favorite novels of his, right? Breakfast of Champions. So Trout comes into it. Uh, I couldn't help but find that Kilgore Trout was... Mm, maybe a little corny? I uh, See, even saying that, I find like, uh, maybe that's too much, right? I, just, I don't mean that. I don't mean it. Oh, it's corny. I don't really mean it was corny. But it, it, it strikes me as a little lackluster reading it now. Yeah, I don't know. Let me know what you think of Kilgore Trout. I know there's a lot of super fans out there that, that think it's wonderful. Uh, but, you know. And there is this quote on page 105 in this edition. And this is, it's funny. There's actually, a, it's like really faded, almost gone highlighter from when I read this, you know, 15 years ago. Uh where Billy's in the in the 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 camp hospital for being sick, and then somebody else is sick, right? Um, they're talking about uh, Billy Pilgrim, so uh, it goes like this: Now the head Englishman came into the hospital to check on Billy. He was an infantry colonel captured at Dunkirk. It was he who had given Billy morphine. There wasn't a real doctor in the compound, so the doctoring was up to him. How's the patient? He asked Derby. Dead to the world but not actually dead. No, 
How nice to feel nothing and still get full credit for being alive. That's the quote I highlighted as a young, as as an older teen, and that's the quote I noticed right now and I marked and wanted to bring it to your attention. And basically, for how true it is, how nice to feel nothing and still get full credit for being alive. And I know that speaks to a lot of people right now. It might speak to a lot of listeners. The kind of numbness, the numbness, emotionlessness, passionless, uh, this feeling stuck, feel nothing and still get full credit for being alive. And I do think about this in kind of a philosophical way. How, even especially with the use of technology, and Vonnegut died before a lot of this technology became the, uh, the obsession that it is now, the kind of addiction that it is now. I do think of that. You still get credit for being alive, even if you actually aren't, right? And maybe that's another kind of reference to that, so it goes, right? So it goes. Life goes on. There's another quote. And I think this is part of why Vonnegut was so, um, why he was so beloved by his fans is because his philosophy on things uh, is rather positive, despite being so cynical. And you could even argue, I think, that it's actually practical, good advice to, you know, not get too worked up over things, not fret over things you can't control so much. Um, But, you know. And uh, this is on page 117 where there's a pretty pivotal part. uh, Well, not pivotal to the story necessarily, but uh, I want to ask listeners about this. I'll read the context here. But this is when Billy Pilgrim is on the alien planet and he's in the zoo on display, right? (laughs) Uh, and uh, he's talking to one of the aliens, and he's asking, uh, So, said Billy gropingly, I suppose that the idea of preventing war on Earth is stupid too, of course. But you do have a peaceful planet here. Today we do. On other days, we have wars as horrible as any you've seen or read about. There isn't anything we can do about them, so we simply don't look at them. We ignore them. We spend eternity looking at pleasant moments. Like today at the zoo. Isn't this a nice moment? Yes. That's one thing earthlings might learn to do if they tried hard enough. Ignore the awful times and concentrate on the good ones. Ignore the awful times and concentrate on the good ones. And this is sound advice, right? This is sound advice. I've argued this a few times where I say, when you dwell on something, like something bad happened to you, like some type of trauma, you know, it depends what the trauma is. You're, you know, I'm not saying, you know, serious, if it's very serious or not. But uh, when you dwell on it, when you constantly bring it back up in your head and think about it even years down the road, no good comes from that. No good comes from dwelling on that. Uh, you'd be much better off if you just ignored it, as Vonnegut was saying in this book as he probably did with his memories of the war, which is why it's so suppressed and cloaked in humor in this novel, I think. And again, I don't want to get psychoanalytical on this, but, uh, you know. But I kept thinking, you know, what do you, what do you think as listeners here? Uh, concentrate on the good times. 
And I just think, I was thinking, okay, what do we think? Is, is this alien wisdom? Is this basic psychology? Or is it meant to call back to the humorous kind of so-it-goes type idea? I would say it's supposed to be all of those, in a way. Uh, you guys can let me know what you think. I'd like to hear. It's sort of this way of, I don't know, Vonnegut making the point that this alien species has reached a higher level of self-actualization than most of the uh, the human world. I don't know. I don't know. I can't speculate much further on that. But I mean, I could give you my opinion, which is, yeah, I think it's a call back to the so it goes idea that's throughout this whole novel, right? Ignore the awful times and concentrate on the good ones. How else do you get through something so horrific like that? How else do you get through with people dying next to you on a train car as you're starving, shitting in buckets that you pass through a window, uh, not allowed off the train for days, smelling, shitting, people vomiting, dead bodies everywhere? How do you get over that? You don't, right? You don't get over it. You have to ignore the awful and concentrate on the good times. And maybe that is something that makes this more of a masculine book. But don't quote me on that because I'm just thinking of it now. But that's an interesting thought. And this brings me to something I mentioned in the monologue where around chapter 6, in chapter 6 there, when the soldiers are brought to Dresden and they go into the slaughterhouse where they house the prisoners of war, I started to think about how painful how painful this book must have been to write. And it started to click with me that dressing this up in humor was the only way Vonnegut probably was able to get this out. Because the real incident, knowing one will die, or at least believing one will die as everyone around you is dying, is so horrific I also wonder if this, you know, it's so horrific. I also wonder if it was to make it easier on the reader. <laughs> you know, would would you want to be in tears at the end of this novel? Or would you want to laugh? And I don't think Vonnegut's ever written anything that makes people kind of go to tears reading. I think it's usually it will make you laugh before it'll make you cry. Uh, and of course, people write him off for that too, which is stupid. Humor is um, just as important, if not more important, than crying or tragedy or sadness. And I, and I, you know, that's what I mean. So seriousness was not Vonnegut's style. Um, it was always more of a kind of a whimsical, funny, joking style. And uh, I'm thinking just now that, yeah, but I don't think he could have done it any other way. Uh, and he talks about this in the very beginning chapter. That's why I keep saying this chapter, that first chapter is so interesting and so important to the overall book. Because... It does show you that he believes it to be a failure, that he thought he didn't do justice to what happened. He thought he made it too much of a joke. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, of course, I'm just speculating at that point, but who knows? Who knows? And this leads me to one of my, a few of my final notes here. On page 164 in this copy, Vonnegut says something similar, something that he said in the very first chapter here. And it's kind of almost an omission, or, or kind of an admission in a way. 
And I and I said one of my main criticisms of this book, from a literary perspective, as I'm older, more educated, more mature now, is there it is rather telly rather than showy. And I know that's kind of a cop out, right? That's kind of like uh, who cares if a good good work is good work. I agree with that. Good work is good work, but. Well, let's just read what he says. On page 164, Vonnegut writes, there, was al- there are almost no characters in this story and almost no dramatic confrontations because most of the people in it are so sick and so much the listless playthings of enormous forces. One of the main effects of war, after all, is that people are discouraged from being characters. But old Derby was a character now. Derby, the older man who uh, we keep hearing about as he's in the POW camp, who eventually gets killed by firing squad for standing against um, kind of a sleazy American that sided with the Germans and touring the camps trying to get these Americans to switch sides, (laughs) which I'm sure actually happened a lot. So, you know, I'm not a I'm not a World War Two buff. I feel like everybody's dad was probably like a World War II and Civil War obsessive. Uh, the boomers, if you had a boomer dad, they were obsessed with that. But this little quote here where, he, yeah, you know, there are almost no characters in this story and almost no dramatic confrontations. And it's almost like a kind of admission, like I said. What, what do we think of that? Is he... I don't know, because he's saying this in a way that, like, Derby is a character we're supposed to feel sympathy for. And we do. We do feel sympathy for without this kind of dr- dramatic confrontation. But, like, you know, Derby's the older man. He doesn't even, he doesn't even get a full speech when, he's, when he stands up and speaks out publicly against the, um, the guy trying to recruit the POWs to join the other side, right? And my question, of course, being a, you know, writing and literature podcast is what does it do for the story? Right, this admission. Is it funny? Does it add some humor? Hmm, I'd say yeah, it adds some humor. Sure. Uh, is he trying to show it in some way? How? The powerlessness of being kind of a private in the military? I think so, sure. I don't know. I, I, I just keep coming back to this idea that like maybe he couldn't have written it any other way, and I think this is why he he can he calls this novel a failure, in that inter- in that first chapter, which is something that's interesting, right? Like, ooh, an author calling their own novel a failure, and it's literally their most successful, most popular novel. Uh, I'm sure it's very real. I'm sure it's very very real. You never know, right? Which one's gonna be a hit? I remember uh, Brett Easton Ellis saying something about when American Psycho came out. Like he had no idea. He thought he was writing like a literary obscure novel that would maybe sell, you know, five thousand copies. Um, and of course, it became a, a cultural icon, selling much more than that. And, you know, you never, you never really know. As as the creator, you never really know, right? But as I finish this up and we get, you know, they get all those war statistics on death. Let's, I mentioned this in the monologue here. But, you know, he's in the hospital there talking to the guy next to him. He's a history professor. And Vonnegut is very anti-academic in a lot of his novels, a lot of his writings. And I know he, he was in and out of that world as his literary fame uh, kind of blew up later in his, in his later years. But 
he very clearly takes shots at academia and how kind of snobby they are and how quick to dismiss outside ideas, things like that. Um, usually very funny. But when I got to the end of this is when I really noticed kind of how reserved the book actually is that this is a, this is a, a kind of a funny sci-fi story, but it's, it's around, you know, it's, it's, it's based around this terrible death, this terrible tragedy. Uh, literally one of the worst, worst bombings of World War II that a lot of people didn't know about until after the war. And I kept thinking of, like, how this book barely touches on it. Besides little bits here and there, and, uh, I don't know. I kept asking, is this book neutral, do you think? Is, is it autofiction? Would you put it in that category? Is it an anti-war book? I think you could make the argument that it's an anti-war book, but I also think the way it's set up with the kind of so it goes, the constant referencing to that, that... I don't know. I don't know if that's... That's the case. If, if he, if an, if an anti-war book could even be made, right? I don't know. And I do think of that, that scene he describes in that first chapter with his, um, his old war buddy's wife, kind of making the argument that nobody remembers war accurately, that it's always obscured. Uh, either we make ourselves overly heroic or overly tragic or and maybe that's what he was trying to avoid maybe that he didn't want it to get all mushy but he also didn't want it to get uh, to completely gloss over the horrors and I don't know but it's an excellent book everybody should buy a copy read it if you haven't read it go out and buy a copy read it tell me what you think so as I always say, if you haven't read something, that's your problem. You need to go in, you need to read it. That's all I have. All I have for today. Reminder to everybody, we do have a subscription plan. If you want to receive full, uncensored episodes of this podcast, bonus episodes for subscribers only, please become a patron at heavyboard.com, at patreon.com slash heavyboard. Uh, if you can't do that, if you don't want to do that, can't afford it, there are other ways to support us. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can check out and subscribe to our YouTube channels. That's at HeavyBoard on YouTube and at HeavyBoard Clips. Give those a like, give those a share, give those a subscribe. That helps us out. Free way to support us. And of course, all the links to all the books that we cover are in the description. And as a final note, we are still looking for workshop horror stories. If you or someone you know had a terrible experience in a workshop, I want to hear about it. Send me an email in excruciating detail to heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. And I'd like to start that segment. That'll be a fun little thing that we could do for each episode here. Let you know that you aren't so alone uh, in hating your writing workshops. But that's it for me. 
I'm Andrew Wittstadt, and this has been Heavy Board. Heavy. Board. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy board. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.